Hey, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of the award-winning recovery podcast, Get in the Herd. My name is Nathan Mitchell, and I am your host today. Um, our guest today is Katie Sponsler, and I've had the um, the privilege of speaking to Katie one on one in a moment of um, a bit of a uh, bit of franticism uh, that was in my it was going at the moment, and so I, uh, I that's there, and and also I've had the pre- privilege of of listening to Katie address the entire um, candlelight vigil uh, we hosted last week. So it is a privilege to have Katie sponsor. She is a delegate candidate um, in the sixty sixth district. Is that correct? Can you hear me, Katie? Oh no. Yeah, no, you're good. I took off my headpiece because I, I you. Blanked out on me again for a little bit. So, oh, I, no. <laughs> so we're going to oh, well. do our best to do without it. All um, right. Well, that's, well, you know what? Uh, flexibility and a sense of humor gets me through a lot. Yeah. It's a really important part of anything. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I, I know that you are a candidate for delegate in the, it's the 66. Is that correct? I, yeah. I, yeah. 66 yeah. district. And I know that uh, you have a history of service. And when you spoke about, challenges that you faced and family faced uh, last week, it really resonated with me and a lot of our uh, listeners, you know, our, our participants at the event last week. So uh, welcome to the show. Um, tell us, Katie, why are you running for delegate? Well, largely because this is just a district that uh, represents a lot of folks that have been left behind. It's a working class district for the most part. It's an ex-urban district. So, you know, we hear a lot of talk about suburban, urban, urban and rural politics, but uh, communities that are built around main streets that have kind of uh, lost population and um, become less and less viable in the last couple decades are not ones that we talk about. And so I want to make sure that folks like me um, that have faced barriers in life, that have come from working class backgrounds, that are constantly struggling, that we actually have representation. Uh, And we don't get it very often because folks like me uh, and and that face those barriers have difficulty running. Um, We we don't have the money, the resources, the energy, the time. And so um, right now I'm able to. So I feel like that's a really important voice that we need in the legislature. And I hope that I can actually represent it well and and hear from the folks here, uh, whether it's uh, the things that are similar to my challenges or new challenges and and make sure that they actually have a voice in the legislature. Excellent. And, you know, reading up on your bio, uh, a couple of things that resonate with me is, um, your service in the military and thank you for your service. And, and I really do want to talk a lot about this because I think it's really fun. Um, your time as a park ranger. Cause I, 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 there's a, there's a tiny little Nathan somewhere in another, in, in somewhere in the multiverse, there's a Nathan who's a park ranger and just living his best life in the woods, just taking care of the bears and I don't know what, but so, <laughs> so, and I know that you're also a mother of a, of a six year old. Is that correct? A six year old and a 22 year old. actually. Oh. Ah, okay. So you've got a range there. Um, okay. Well, so, so I know that that's, uh, uh, that you've, you've got a a history of service. And so when I think about the service and I think about what recovery means, you know, there's a, there's a crossover and, and, you know, they talk about, if you go into the rooms of a 12 step meeting, we talk about, um, 
you know, helping the newcomer or the new person to recovery. And we talk about, you know, that's the most important person in the room. And we talk about service to the community and the recovery community specifically, but also the broader community. So tell me, you know, walk me through, if you would, walk us through your, your journey into why you are running for delegate now. You know, and, and, and what that means for people like me in the recovery community, but, you know, specifically uh, substance use disorder, mental health, all the all the things, healthcare. Yeah, so um, I am one of seven kids. I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, which is a, an area that's been hit hard uh, by the opioid epidemic as well. Uh, and then, so for those who don't know, it's in the Rust Belt, um, our, our nice little moniker for uh, places that have been left behind. Uh, and um, I am, um, so my dad was a union auto worker. My mom was a church secretary, uh, very much a working class upbringing. Uh, by the time I was 18, I was uh, married and had my first child, my daughter. Uh, my partner uh, and my husband uh, struggled with um addiction. And uh, by the time I was 20, I was on my way to a uh, divorce and raising my daughter by myself. So I joined the military um, at the age of 20, about four months later, September 11th happened. So oh, for wow. the first time in my, um, my life, really, we were in an active war. Um, so I got out of training, went straight to um, an airbase in Germany, where I worked in a gun shop. I was one of um, probably five, six women on the base that did my job. But in my shop, I was the only woman. And um, I was building and repairing the weapon systems for A-10s that went downrange. So in Iraq and Afghanistan, all of them came through our gun shop. And then I worked with explosives for about three more years. Um, during that time um, in active duty, I was, I was there for six years. Um, I was unfortunate enough to become another statistic, which is I, uh, became a military sexual assault survivor. Um, and that resolution was very unsatisfactory because it goes through a command structure in the military. Um, I had seen a number of folks who had survived that turned to self-medication and, uh, most of them, uh, would leave, um, end up getting discharged for that uh, self-medication due to the fact that it was unresolved trauma. It was something that wasn't treated very well. And there was, um, you know, that temptation. I was lucky enough that I've um, always had my daughter and I've been her sole caregiver. So I, you know, when people talk about being a, a single parent, being a difficult barrier, it is in terms of financial and, and all that good stuff, but um, it is, and it was for me a constant motivator to, you know, since I was the only one that she could count on, I always made sure that she could count on me. So I um, left active duty and became a reservist while going to school, I'm majoring in criminal justice with a resource protection background because I wanted to be a park ranger. Um, I think that this is, um, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, Young Nathan probably went over in the multiverse and became, it's it's a very common thing. Everybody that I meet when I was working was like, oh my God, this is the coolest job ever. Uh, <laughs> and it is, it's a great job. Um, I, I uh, was in Youngstown doing, you know, working three jobs and going to school full, full time. And then um, got my job, was very excited. Uh, came here to Virginia. Uh, the Park Service does joke that we pay overtime in sunsets, which is very true. We do not pay well. 
Uh, so I was working for a very low pay rate. Um, you, you should come work in recovery support services. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I was able to, uh, but I, I, I was able to just barely keep a roof over our heads and food on the table. Um, and I did that for about four years before heading to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Academy in Georgia. Now I had been through two police academies. I was Ohio State certified and um, federally certified as a seasonal ranger um, and then had to go through a third academy. Um, and I had in that time um, in the interim become a crisis intervention trained uh, instructional officer and a um, disability advocate um, because for many mental illnesses as well as for autism, um, the arrest rate is extraordinarily high as well as the injury uh, rate um, through police violence. So it was really important to me having uh, one child on the spectrum at that time that, um, and, and knowing so many people in the uh, mental health community to make sure that officers had the best possible training um, when dealing with those occurrences. Uh, one of the things that became uh, really clear to me at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Academy was that that was not prioritized. So I started advocating there, um, explaining, you know, this is, I've been doing this for four years. This is my education. This is my background. I do it by myself. Um, I'm not comfortable with this being the teaching that we're giving to 83 federal agencies. Um, mm -hmm they did not like that very much <laughs> so i um so it's a funny thing police instructors don't like being uh, corrected um so i um ended up one day before graduation being sent home um being told that i needed to have my attitude adjusted um i um had completed all the skill sets but i was told that i could only go back and repeat the entire uh, five-month academy if I could keep a mouth shut. Uh, so I um, <laughs> instead <laughs> decided to continue fighting. Um, so that started, uh, and my, my son was on the way um, as I was going through this process. And so I decided instead to um, keep fighting for, um, you know, a number of the issues that I had seen at the academy. Um, there was um, some inherent um, racial bias being trained in. There was certainly... Um, some mental health, like terrible words being used. Um, and, and language is so important. Um, and I think people don't realize that whether it was um, the, um, the community struggling with addiction, community struggling with mental illness, uh, sex workers, all these really, really, um, these words that were meant to imply inferiority, to to create this us versus them mentality, to imply danger, to imply illegality and immorality. And um, that leads to a mindset that is dangerous um, for me. So I started out in really working with the disability community um, and with um, the police community, trying to help to um, advocate for that and went back to advocating for uh, those survivors of sexual violence. Um, as I had been uh, doing during my five years in the reserves as a sexual assault resistance counselor. Uh, so I had done some peer-to-peer -peer, um, for uh, military sexual assault survivors um, during my reserve years. So um, all that just really kind of culminated in 2016 and um, 2017 that followed. And so it just really kind of pushed out to, okay, we're not getting 
the relief we need on the advocacy side. You know, we're just not being heard. So it's time to get into the electoral side. And um, that the last four years have been knocking for candidates I believe in. I ran back in 2017 just to hopefully get some um, information um, to our longstanding legislator who had been unchallenged in over two decades. Um, I, I'm happy to say that even though the district was about a 30 point Republican district then, and I was running as a Democrat, uh, that the next year that incumbent voted uh, for Medicaid expansion, which he had uh, advocated against very strongly. Um, so we, you know, we moved the needle, but then when the districts were redrawn, a lot of folks reached out and asked me to run again with a district that was winnable. Um, it, it took a little arm twisting because the, the political side of it, I love being an advocate. I love being able to yell at people. Um, it, it, but really, I do believe it's incredibly important that when we have the opportunity and we come from these communities and this is a passion and, and something that uh, belongs to our hearts, that we are able to get out and run and that we do it because I don't know that there's a better way to get folks to listen than to be somebody who's actually pulling the lever for those votes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's that was a, a surprise to me as a person in recovery who found my recovery um, through a jail program. You know, I was arrested as a result of my a possession charge, and, or I was arrested and charged with possession of uh, Schedule One, Schedule Two narcotics, which in Virginia, as you may or may not be aware, it risks up to ten years in prison, um, which is absurd on the face of it um when you have states like a uh, utah and and other other states that, that have made these misdemeanors and so so for me i had no idea that was a pro you know that was a case and of course in virginia you do have the the first time uh disposition uh first offender disposition however that can get thrown out the window if you have a a reoccurrence of use you know while you're in pretrial or or you know pick up new charges because you're using and so and that's what happened to me and so as a result i'm now a felon and had no idea that my voting rights would be taken away that i would not be able to run for office serve on a jury all the things right um which i can now do uh, except for own a gun i saw i would have to petition the courts to still own a to, to own a gun at this point but i've gotten my rights restored and you know some governors have made it easier than others you know this particular governor you know recent governor or current governor northam um he's made it you know he's made it a priority to to get people back into voting and, and back, you know, their civil rights. However, it's ingrained in our state constitution, our commonwealth constitution. So, you know, that's a, a big issue personally for me, um, as well as uh, bringing possession charges down to a misdemeanor, defelonizing or reclassifying drugs. However, and this is an important point, I think, you know, when we're looking at the totality of, of you know, drug policy in Virginia, you know, ensuring and, and, and how we handle uh, mental health crises you know it's like like the marcus alert system that just went through and other other things that are trying to address the health issue instead of addressing you know it as a police problem you know it's the same with with drugs in my mind you know it's like okay great we do have a problem there's there's nobody who you know we we the the, the rest of the united states the the rate of overdoses was 30% last year. You know, we were 41% in Virginia, our overdose rates went up. So, you know, obviously there is a problem. We're right on that 95, you know, corridor, but addressing it in the, in the courts is not working. 
you know, and there are people, you know, in the in the House and in the Senate that are doing, you know, good work right now that are that are trying to you get like Sally Hudson in Char in Charlottesville. You know, she's looking at this and saying, how do we declassify this so we can ensure that people are declassified, excuse me, reclassify this <laughs> um, so that we can ensure that people get actual the health care needs taken care of. And, you know, I. I've talked to a lot of people running for office and there's a lot of people who come to me and say, well, Nathan, would you have gotten into recovery if you hadn't been arrested? And I think that's a really valid point. You know, a lot of people ask me that. I said, and, and my response to that is, I don't know. There wasn't another way. So we, we do need another way, you know, and, and I, there wasn't another way offered to me at the time. It turns out there is another way, you know, we've got this system in place where we've got these non-governmental agencies, you know, and, and we do have DBHGS and the CSBs, which do a lot of great work. I, I tend to beat up on them a little bit, but I also know a lot of people who work there doing incredible work. And I've got a guy that was just in my office. But we have non-governmental organizations, agencies that are doing this work, like McShin Foundation and like True Recovery, like like other organizations like that. We did recently get you know a big $10 million push with the ARP funding that came through from the federal government. And that went right to VAR, the Virginia Association of Recovery Residences. How do we ensure that we continue to push that needle for you know forward how do we continue to ensure that we're working towards solving the addiction crisis you know, the, the these drug epidemics uh, as, a, as a public health issue instead of a public safety criminal justice concern you know and and i know i've thrown a lot of words out there but you know my question is what do you say to that how do you how do we do this you know what what do you what are your thoughts so there's there's a um you know there's a biden quote um that i'm quite fond of uh, where he says, you know, don't, don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what your priorities are. <laughs> so um, I like that. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, um, you know, and, and I think that's really where we have to look at, at, at where we concentrate our funding. So we put a lot of funding into policing and when it comes to individuals on the ground being well-trained, um, being uh, well, you know, compensated for their work, making sure that they have health care and benefits, that funding is well spent. When it comes to things like SWAT vehicles and riot gear and, you know, and, and then we look at things like knowing that certain police agencies utilize quotas um, for arrest. Those are all things that we need to address in, in policing and, and make sure that we are prioritizing well. When we remove incentives, like um, funding based on quotas and uh, funding based on um, drug interdiction. Uh, so we, we create an environment where getting help becomes the more important thing. Uh, we also need to make sure that we provide the resources for law enforcement officers to do that, right? Because I, um, I've spent a lot of time uh, with the autism community. I've spent a lot of time with mental uh, mental health community. I've spent a lot of time in the recovery community. And, um, you know, some of the communities I belong to represent some of the largest proportion of uh, individuals who, who struggle with addiction. So veterans, law enforcement, um, working class individuals, individuals with trauma, they are all higher end um, on the addiction scale. So, and, and my family has a history of it. So it's something that I'm very familiar with. And when we look at that, um, 
I know personally that someone who is um, under the influence of, of specific drugs, and there's certain ones that are more likely to cause it than others, and also someone who is in crisis, or even um, an individual uh, with autism who is having a meltdown, can be physically dangerous. Um, and, and the reason is, is because we don't know how to address it properly most of the time. So making sure that we do actually have the individuals who are trained on call available for law enforcement. So that means investing in things like social workers. That means investing in things like psychiatrists. Uh, it means investing in things like mental health care units and making sure that we have beds available to individuals. It means investing in things like um, hospital response that instead of just treating an overdose or just treating a trauma, we are also treating, um, you know, you know, instead of just the medical part of it, we're recognizing that this is going to create a mental health emergency. So we need to address that and make sure those individuals are coming there and providing care and offering those resources right then. Um, and, and, you know, that is all an investment in a system that has been overburdened. So we have to make that investment. It's an investment that is well, you know, well worth it. It saves us money in the long term. We know that having an addiction crisis is an incredibly expensive thing. Um, but we also know that we can prevent uh, a lot of these in, these um, comorbidities from even occurring. So poverty is is something that leads to higher rates of addiction. So making sure that we are creating environments where fewer people are living in poverty, making sure that we are creating environments where people have access to mental health care so they're not self-medicating, making sure that we have fewer physical and sexual traumas that lead to um, addiction. So those are some of the things that are, are really important. Those And those are long-term investments. We talk about what we want to invest in. These are things that pay off in the long run. We know they do. Um, things like building up um, stuff, essentially, through contractors, um, that doesn't pay off in the long run. We, we don't get money back on that investment. We do on taking care of people. And so if, if we look at it from a purely economic standpoint, it does save money. I look at it more from a human standpoint where I, I know wonderful and amazing people that have overdosed, that have um, lost their lives to addiction, whether they're still alive or not. And I know that I feel it is my responsibility to help as many people avoid that as possible. And so that is something that, you know, we can invest in as a community. Um, but as a commonwealth, if we're looking at, you know, well, where's the money come from? There are places where we overspend and there are places that we can spend more effectively. And we actually make the job better for law enforcement when we don't have them dealing with something they are not trained to deal with. Um, I do think we can, we can look at our classification of drug penalties. Um, we definitely need to bring them down. Uh, we need to provide, now we have the um, intervention programs, but they're not a guarantee. Some communities don't have them. So making sure that we are, are across the board, making sure that uh, first time uh, offenses have access to quality care um, and, and they can actually do those diversion programs. Um, and then just, the standard of justice should not vary based on what, what county or city you're in. It should be the same across mm -hmm. the, the Commonwealth. <laughs>
And so I think that's really an important part of it. I think that, you know, we do, but I, it's really, it, it's an investment in those structures that build, um, that build long-term recovery because long-term recovery is the goal. And it, it, it can be very um, difficult to get into the programs and you have to ask for help. And when you're in the throes of addiction, you're very unlikely to do that. So yes, that police interaction can lead to it, but if we have officers who can call a social worker, then it can lead to it without the arrest, without the felony. And felony uh, enfranchisement is really important. Make it, I, I believe um, 100% in automatic uh, restoration. I think that, um, you know, my, my partner is German. Um, he grew up in Hamburg and he, when I was talking to him about automatic restoration, he looked at me and he said, you mean people can't vote from jail? I said, no, they can't. I said, well, jail, yeah, kind of, but not prison. And so, you know, you know, and that's in the, in the German criminal justice system, you're still a citizen in jail. So you still have citizens' rights, which is crazy, right? But um, <laughs> there are places in the United States where you can vote from prison, yeah. but not in Virginia. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, do, I do believe that, we, you know, there's really a need um, to, and, and again, because we, the people most impacted by this policy should be the people that have the power to change it and have the input to put into it. So if we're talking about the recovery community and 90% of them have to fight to get their rights restored, um, they are the ones that have the most effective ideas and programs that they can share because it's their lived experience with you know, the, the electoral system and we've banned them from sharing it. So that it, it, it doesn't even make sense in the, um, in, in the way that our government's supposed to work and how our government works well. Um, so when we're talking about criminal justice reform, the fact that so many of those most impacted by it can't even impact it at the voting booth is really problematic. Um, and we need to make sure that we are, are valuing that input because it's that lived experience. And lived experience is the, is the greatest teacher on any of these topics. So, you know, this is what I needed. You know, the first time I did uh, I utilized crisis intervention, um, was with a young woman from Florida and, um, she was having a, um, a psychotic episode. Um, she suffered from schizophrenia and, um, she arrived at our park, uh, unclothed and very, very incoherent. And I was able to talk her into um, self-committing at the local uh, uh, hospital. And so it, it was probably about a half an hour interaction. And, and anyway, I did it in front of my police chief. Um, and he walked away from it and he said, what was that? And I, I said, what do you mean? And he said, I've never seen that. You were so patient. Like she was dangerous. I said, no, she wasn't dangerous. She didn't touch me. And he said, but you knew what to do. And I said, so that was crisis intervention. Y'all aren't, and in Ohio, it's required for officers. So that I had actually gotten the original training through the Ohio State certification. And he says, no, I, we're not. And, you know, her parents came up a couple days later to bring her clothing and to talk with her at the hospital. And they said that she was the best they had seen her in 
um, in 20 years since her diagnosis and that every time she had run into law enforcement, she had been arrested. Um, And so, you know, the, the idea that that is just a common lived experience. And, and that's where actually crisis intervention comes from is the mental health community saying like, this is what we go through and we don't, it's not, we know we're more likely to hurt you, but if you knew how to interact with us, we might not be. So, you know, that, um, and that experience and, in, in, in learning that was like how valuable this was. Um, and, and that came from that community and to have her parents tell me that, that, that in, in 20 years she had been, uh, had 10 or 12 interactions with police and she had been arrested every single time. Um, and she was the nicest thing once, you know, I was able to, to calm her down and break a little bit through her veil of unreality that she was in at that point. Um, and so I think, you know, this is incredibly important and it's a tool that all of our officers should have. Um, but if they don't even have the, the places to send people, if they don't have the social workers to call, um, and I recognize that law enforcement is not always my mindset. So, you know, some of them are not going to be super skilled at this. That's why social workers should be on call. That's why psychiatrists should be on call um, to help with those situations. And um, we can provide that with a, a smart investment and um, taking the money away from programs where we're not getting anything out of them. Our community isn't getting anything. So um, I do think, you know, yeah, recovery homes um, are really important, but it's it's an across the board uh, investment we need to make in this. And um, looking at individuals who have added to the opioid crisis and um, we can have them help pay for it if, if we if we like the laws right and prosecute right. So. Oh, let's, let's talk about that opioid abatement authority, but that's another that's another conversation. There's so much that you said there that I'd I'd like to unpack a little bit though, and one of one of those one of the crisis intervention because I know, um, you know, we had a, a situation here in Henrico County uh, two or three years ago where a woman was having a um, psychotic episode in her own home and somebody had called uh, to do a wellness check on her and, and the police responded and she was barricaded in her bedroom and they broke down the door to get into the bedroom and she came at them with an ax and they shot and killed her. And that was so, um, and, 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 there's a lot of you know co-occurring uh, with the substance use disorder. I don't know if that was a situation with this particular case, but I that response to me though um, that that was really striking to me. There's a couple of things that have happened over the last couple of years that have just been you know standout moments of oper- opportunities through you know crisis uh, mismanagement and and this poor woman in her own home, um, you know, and 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 nothing happening really to the police and and you know i I don't know what crisis intervention training is happening i know it's gotten better in her and i've I've talked to shannon taylor about that the commerce attorney about that and i know that they've been implementing more and more and i I think it's really important for us as uh, members of the recovery community and, and members of the mental health you know community to continue to tell our stories you know to continue to interact and and engage the 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 public partners that we have, um, so that we don't have these, you know, these crises on the, on our hands again, you know, in using the resources we have available. And I agree, you know, the best resources we have is that authentic lived experience. And you mentioned 
in that conversation, the beginning of the conversation, uh, you mentioned interactions in the hospitals and overdoses. And so this has been a, a particularly um, annoying, frustrating issue over the last couple of years. There's been some, um, um, there was an amazing bill, uh, Juliet, uh, Julie Funkhauser up in Northern Virginia, um, you know, and she has this, this incredibly empowering story of, of what she's done in her own recovery, but through the loss of her, her partner as a result of being discharged, you know, it, it, from an emergency department without proper care, um, you know, what happened next is that he's no longer here. And so what she's tried to do is change the conversation and, and to just make it standard um, in, in recovery, excuse me, emergency departments across the Commonwealth to have, you know, initially the bill was, you know, certified peer recovery specialists, you know, which are came from the Mental Health uh, Society of, of Behavioral Health. Make sure that people are introduced to what recovery can be and what it looks like. And just having a standard set of protocols, evidence-based protocols available for a person who comes in and presents so we're not just treating and streeting overdose, overdoses, which, you know, not every hospital is doing that. There's, there's some really good hospitals doing some great work, too. And yet it's not standardized. And we couldn't get that bill through. Like a very, very watered down bill went through two years ago um, that simply said, okay, well, the Department of Health has to come up with standards. Well, okay, great. We tried to push through again last year. Well, I guess the beginning of this year, right? With the regular session. And that bill... We couldn't even get Narcan to be distributed out of the emergency department. And this is through a blue... You know, House and Senate and, and you know, everything blue over here, so which, which I'll go into how purple is the color of recovery and how purple is the color that we use, you know, when we talk to, you know, people running and people who are, are in office because, you know, I, 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 I vote many issues, um, but my life is the most important one. And so because of that, though, we couldn't even get Narcan out of that. And I, and so the, the best that came out of that was a flyer, you know, here's, here's some information about what you can do next. And, and I just think that we're really, we're, um, we're, we're, what's the word I'm looking for? We're, we're missing an opportunity, you know, to have, and, and we're missing an opportunity to have peers, you know, with lived experience there, you know, we're missing an opportunity to reduce stigmas, to allow people to get access when they need it. You know, and I, I've been, you know, in, in a hospital, you know, in my recovery and had conversations with doctors and nurses and, and all the clinicians about, hey, wait a second, you know, what are you putting in me? I, I have, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. And, you know, many have said, oh, wow, great. Thank you for having that conversation. But I've had some looks like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? And so that's a, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a huge problem. And, and I wasn't even asking for help with my addiction. I was just, uh, I think at one point, it doesn't matter. But anyway, the point is, is that, you know, we don't have our clinicians properly trained. We're not giving people the access to recovery they need at the moment they need it, you know, and, and, and I think of the gap for me, you know, I think of the gap for me. I was arrested with uh, narcotics on me. I was uh, spent the night in jail, I went home, and then I had to go to court for that. Nowhere, and then I went to pretrial, you know, nowhere in all of my pretrial, nowhere in the arrest situation did anybody say, hey, you know what, there's something else you can do. 
You know, nobody who had lived experience and knew what I was going through talked to me like a human being one-on-one without talking down to me, without telling me how awful I am, without telling me why I'm a felon now. Nobody said to me, you know what? This seems like this might be a problem for you. We can help. You know, I don't know that I would have gotten it. I might not have, right? But I can tell you, at the end of, well, towards the end of my pretrial, I sat down with my pretrial officer who had been, you know, was this lovely woman doing the, the best she could. But, you know, I, I always walked in and I tell this story all the time, so forgive me. But you know, I walked in and I'm, I'm, I had, you know, a button down shirt. My hair was short at the time, so I was very clean cut. Um, and I would walk in every time and I would just tell this, you know, I, I would. I would look like I was doing great. And the reality is, as I was three or four or five days from my previous use, because I wanted to make sure that I did well on the, you know, I, I didn't want to fail a urine screen, but I would get high in the parking lot, you know? And I'm not saying that proudly. I'm telling you, like, I lost 35 pounds in four months in front of this woman. And she looked at me at the end when I said, what are we doing? And she said, well, Nathan, look at how well you're doing. And in my head, I'm screaming, I have stuff in my car. I'm about to get, you know, and, and at no point did she have any idea what was actually going on with me. And I never saw her. Well, I didn't see her again until I went to trial because I ended up absconding. And so, you know, I think of those gaps, you know, and this was a rural community. This is Warrington. It's, it's pretty rural up there. I think if I'd been arrested in Henrico, I would have had different outcomes. But, you know, you, at, you talked about you know, across the board being, you know, having the same thing that happens in Warrington be the same thing that happens in Fauquier County, being the same thing that happens down in um, uh, uh, somewhere farther south, uh, Virginia Beach. Um, so, you know, I look at that, too, and I think there's this push now to putting drug courts in in place. And I think this is a really dangerous idea. And I and I bring this up. I don't know if Robert's watching, but you know I've got one of our one of our, uh, our strong watchers or viewers who is constantly talking about drug courts, and this is something that was completely new to me. And so I, you know, it wasn't something that was offered to me. I'm grateful it wasn't offered to me, but it's like now we have um, these drug courts, which I think 5.5 million Virginians have access to. And I, I don't think on the face of it, it's the worst idea. But I do think that it's just being promoted without evidence, you know, and brought to. So I think that, you know, conversations I'm having now with, a, with public policy makers are, well, wait a second, what are we doing? What is this? What is, what is drug court? What does it mean to you? Are we actually doing the best thing for our people? And I can tell you, like 200 and some odd people graduated from drug court last year. The numbers are not good, you know, uh, the numbers are not good and, and, and they'll be finessed to look great. But the thing is, is that they, they create more barriers to recovery. They create barriers to successful outcomes, you know, that, that, you know, financial work, you know, all these things. And they create barriers, you know, when you lose your, when you become a, a felon, you lose your driver's license, you know, for, for six months. And then, you know, in many communities, well, now you got to go to drug court, but oh, by the way, we're not on a bus route. We don't have public transportation. You got to figure it out. And we're going to call you at any time, you know, just out of the blue, you know, maybe you're going to have to miss work. So a good, st somebody keeps telling me that a good start would just be to call this recovery court. I'm like, well, that's great. You can call whatever you want, but it's still what it is. It's, it's, it's a not evidence-based, horrible set of construct that that's not working well. Or we can look at the alternatives. You know, let's get rid of 
the you know the 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 felony uh, the felony possession charges, you know, let's look at that and say, you know, we can look at what they did in Oregon, right? You know, in Oregon, it's not working great yet, but they're working through it. I think we can learn from that. You know, they took a Portugal model. They changed it a little bit. I think, I think what they did was by not, by not mandating, you are familiar with what they did in Oregon. Yeah. So they, they decriminalized all drugs, right? And in the process, you could pay a $100 fine or you can get assessed for needs, right? But they didn't mandate the assessment. And I think that's crucial because um, we had a guest on a couple months ago. It was maybe four months in to, to Oregon. I don't know what's happened since then, but four months in and everybody who'd been arrested had just paid the fine. So nobody was getting assessed. And I, I think that's, you know, th th there's, a, there's a crucial point here that that I think we also need to recognize too is not everybody who's possessing drugs is an addict who needs help, who needs all the continuum of care, the wraparound services. But I do think that we need to have access to that. So what do we do? Mandating the assessment, you know, making sure that we're looking at that, you know, well, wait a second, what is going on with you? Is this something you, you know, want to work on? Is this something you're not, you know, and I think having the peers in place that, you know, instead of having a drug court run by judges and officers, you know, we have some sort of recovery assessment run by peers, you know, and, and clinicians too. There's a partnership there. And I think these are good models to look at and observe as we go forward. So um, I know I've said a lot, I don't really have a question out of that, but what do you support in terms of, because you come from a criminal justice background, you know, coming from a policing background, you know, what do you support as far as treating this addiction crisis? Because there's also, you know, a huge part of this, you know, sorry, I keep talking and thank, thank you, Justin. <laughs> he keeps muting you and not, there's a huge part of the, the people that are in jail now, right? And and I'll tell you a story about that in a second. But you know, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people in jail right now with a substance use disorder. You know, some places in Virginia it's up to ninety percent, but the estimates are seventy ish percent right now of individuals who have some sort of maybe not substance use disorder, but have some sort of chemical dependency that you know causing all the other crime associated with it. And yes, you know, tackling um, tackling all the the, the underlying issues, you know, the, the, the job security, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, excuse me, the, the, uh, uh, unemployment, um, you know, all the, all the social service issues. Um, what do we do though? What do we do for those who are committing crimes at the same time, you know, in, in, in service of their substance use disorder in service of the addiction, how do we help those individuals? And, and that's, that's another piece of that. So, you can go ahead and unmute. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I got distracted there for a second. Katie, what do you say to that? Well, I, I think that we um, we know that we have um, a mental health issue in our jails and prisons. You know, uh, whether it's substance use disorder or anxiety or depression or, um, you know, we know that that is an issue. We know that is as many as uh, 50 to 60 percent of our inmates um, and incarcerated persons are, in fact, um, have a mental disorder. And that treatment, I think, in general, we need better treatment programs in, in, in prisons and jails. So we do have, you know, if it's just, um, if it's just a, a possession charge or, um, then that is, that's, a, that's the reclassification of the substances that is looking at our um, drug laws and uh, working on those issues. So that's like a legislative thing. 
Um, now, if we're looking at the crime that arises from it, you know, um, theft and burglary um, arising from a need to to pay for your uh, substance use, um, those kind of things, um, then we are looking at you know something that we have a we have a separate crime. So um, we need to look at how we we need to identify that that is um, that is rising out of. So our, our pretrial report should include that, that, that there's a substance use disorder here that has led to this other criminality. Um, and we need to make sure that while that sentence is being served, that we are providing those services. Now, I know we have NA in our jails and prisons, um, but we don't always have you know, very comprehensive services. We don't also make sure that's part of probation and parole when we get out. So making sure that we are looking at uh, continued care uh, because sometimes um, uh, incarceration is the easiest time to get clean and sometimes it's one of the hardest uh, it kind of just depends on which which uh, institution you're in you know I, I have a, a beloved aunt that um, got clean in, in in jail you know and and so she's like you know if I if I hadn't been locked up for eight months uh, without access to drugs I would have never gotten clean um, so you know, but I also have, you know, a beloved friend who OD'd in a jail cell. So, you know, it, it kind of depends. Um, so, you know, while those services are there, but when you get back out into the community, that's where substance use disorder becomes the hardest to maintain, right? Especially if you have your, you know, your friends, some of them are still using, or you just, you know, people know you, and that's the community that you spend time with. Um, and, and that, is very common with substance use disorder is that you um, you build a community around it, right? Um, so yeah. you kind of isolate all those loved ones from before and it becomes your community. And, and so that can be very difficult after you get back out. And a lot of times if you have served time, you know, families might be, you know, fed up at that point and they, they give up on. And, and so that, so for certain people, it's a, incredibly isolating. Now they've lost their family, they're clean. So the, you know, the community of users that they've created um, is pretty much their only group anymore. So they go back to their friends and their friends are happy that they're clean, but at the same time they use and it's tempting. And so we have to make sure that continuity of care continues. And, and so I think that's one of the big things. We see this again and again in the numbers and recidivism. Um, so that comes, you know, that criminal justice background comes in, to, in handy in the education uh, part of it. Um, not so much the execution and the, the police academies, but the college courses where we see how recidivism um, is best served. So and, and comprehensive mental health care during incarceration is one of the number one ways that we serve it. The other way is through that continuity of care afterwards. So probation and parole are meant to um, stop the criminality, right? They're meant to monitor the criminality and the recidivism. They're not meant to treat the human being. So that continuity of care that best serves is um, regular meetings with clinicians, regular uh, meetings with a peer recovery group, whatever that might be. Some For some it's NA, for some it's you know, just um, a, a group therapy, can be a recovery house like McShin or 
So, but those, those communities with the recovery community, individuals who are in recovery like themselves and, uh, and also, uh, making sure that we are treating some of those, um, predeterminants. So things like poverty, if they, um, you know, we're living in a community where, um, drug use is common and where poverty is high then making sure that we are providing the opportunity to stay employed. So we've given them better employment options. We are creating employment opportunities instead of things like banning them from certain employment by, you know, having a box that says that they, they are felons. Um, and so, so we, you know, creating those really good economic opportunities as well um, needs to be part. So re-entry is really important. Um, but also we know that continuing that care, that medical care, the mental health care, uh, the community care that builds up people when they leave um, incarceration. So that's, I think, really the important part of, of that treatment. Um, I do think, you know, yes, we have a number of folks who already have substance use disorder. I know I come um, <clears throat> I come from the chronic pain community. Um, I, I spent my life with lymphoma, so I have severe joint and um, spinal issues. And I'm in a, a large amount of pain every day. Um, I am lucky enough to, to be a veteran, so I have dog tags, and mine very clearly say no, no narcotics. Um, I have a red dog tag that I wear that says no narcotics. Um, because I'm, I'm just well aware of my, uh, you know, my genetic history of it, and I'm well aware of how many people in the chronic pain community um, end up using because they, they needed something to relieve the pain. And after their doctor cut them off from the prescription medication, they ended up um, finding another way to do it. Um, and I just was aware of those statistics because I'm educated in criminal justice. So I made sure I didn't allow myself to even get that gateway in. Um, so, and it's hard though, it is difficult. And I know that if um, I was aware of, of the relief, I don't know what the relief feels like because I've never allowed myself it, um, that, you know, it, after a few months, it, this pain would wear on me and I, and if I had used previously, I might very well go back to it. So um, things like treating the, the healthcare issues that lead to it, comprehensive pain management um, that offers alternatives. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a yoga fanatic because I think that it helps with mind and body. So, um, you know, I, I actually teach pain management through exercise. And, and I think that having those kind of um, resources available to everyone is is a really important thing. There's so many people that um, need the help, but they're not going to seek it. Um, and, and that is a common thread with all of these identities, whether it is a previous trauma. We don't, if people with trauma don't seek help because they don't trust others. Um, people with mental illness don't seek help because frequently they believe that other people are, are going to hurt them. Um, and they're incredibly vigilant because they have been, they're more likely to be abused and, and disabused. Um, so, you know, people um, from uh, lower economic backgrounds just can't afford help, so they don't seek it. So, I mean, this is something that, and then once we add the criminalization factor, then individuals are afraid to seek help because they're afraid they'll end up in jail because of it. Um, and, and too often we are turned away. We also have stories of people who go and say, I need help. Um, you know, I'm thinking of self-harm or I'm thinking of using again, or I, um, and I just, or I'm in a, a lot of pain. And once you have that history 
of substance use disorder, then you're, you become even more likely to be turned away. Oh, you're medication seeking. We're, we're not going to see you. Oh, you know, you, um, it, you don't, you don't really need help. You know, this is not what we do. This is an emergency room. We treat medical emergencies. So making sure that that is considered a medical emergency, that mental health care is considered a medical emergency and that our ERs and, and two, two are again, ERs and hospitals credits, they are so overwhelmed right now, making sure they have the resources to actually do that. Um, we know that our, our, our beds are, are full in our mental health facilities. Um, but, you know, being able to provide that, those options, I think is really important. And that if we are prosecuting for a drug related crime and, and understanding that a lot of times, um, in particular, the property crimes, theft and, theft and burglary, burglary ugh, are <laughs> drug related crimes. So, you know, and, and recognizing them as such. Um, and, and so making sure that when we are prosecuting for those things, that we are providing that, you know, the assessment of needs and whatever those needs are for that individual, that they get them not only while incarcerated, but afterwards as well, because that community reentry is really difficult. And if you're throwing in substance use disorder, it's even harder. So we need to make sure that we're providing that with our, you know, we have plenty of money for probation officers that are going to make sure that you're not using again by making pee in a cup and making sure that, but we don't have, um, that we don't seem to put the resources into making sure that that is practical for you. It is something you can achieve and that after your probation and your parole, you will continue to do so because you found value in it and you have found value in yourself. And so, you know, that, you know, you can do this. And so, you know, starting that the immediate, you know, first step out, you know, uh, of that institution is so important. And I, I mean, I know institutionalized, I've spent most of my life, one way or another, it's the military. <laughs> it's scary. That first step is scary when you have had everything around you. And and the longer the term of incarceration is, the longer that, that the more uh, terrifying that is. So uh, making sure that we're eliminating um, that, that it, I mean, that pitfall, we put people out on the edge of a cliff and we're like, don't fall in. <laughs> um, but because we'll arrest you again if you do. But um, instead of saying, "Okay, let's let's put you out in front of a bridge and we'll, we'll help you cross it," I like that. I like that, uh, Justin. There's a comment up there. Do you want to pull that up so we can see? Is it something? Uh, Greg Lewis says, "I have a friend now who will not seek treatment because of a warrant." Yeah, that's a that's a really common thing. That's a and and Greg, I feel you on that because. Um, I've had two warrants in the past and, and would not seek anything until, yeah. Uh, and that is a problem and that continues to be a problem. And, and, you know, one of the things, you know, I realize we're coming up on the end of the hour here, but, you know, I don't want to go down this path. It'll take, it, it's a long conversation, but I really, you know what? Um, I, 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 uh, I think though that, that there's a lot, a lot of good conversation that we've just had here and there's a lot more to continue to have. And I like that we're able to incorporate, um, you know, here, Justin, uh, with the with the the podcast here, we're able to talk to individuals who are running for office, um, Republican, Democrat, independent, you know, who are are looking to make some real change uh, with the way that we look at substance use disorder. And you know, I, you know, I'm part of the Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project, and so one of the things that we continue to say is, and I think what you're getting at, Katie, is that when we invest in recovery, we build stronger families. 
we create safer communities and we produce healthier citizens. And the reality is, is that, you know, we can invest money in recovery on the front end and save a lot of money on courts and judges and jails and on the back end. And, and by doing that and by changing the conversation, by reducing the stigma, by giving people access to, to immediate recovery support services. And, you know, Step Virginia does a really good job at setting out Step Virginia, which does uh, mental health. Uh, Katie, you're probably aware of that. But, um, you know, Step Virginia does a really good job at saying we're going to provide same day access. They're not the best at actually providing same day access, they'll provide same day assessment. And I, I think though, I think it's, look, we're looking into it, man. I, I, I love that, that this is the conversation. We can continue to move that needle forward. I'm going to keep using that phrase. You used it earlier, you know, keep pushing the needle forward because, you know, there, there's a real opportunity to change things here. And so Katie, before we go, I want to give you an opportunity to say something, you know, to, 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 to finish out. But I also want to tell you that our biggest audience is, and I don't know if I told you this or not, but our biggest audience are actually ind individuals who are currently experiencing incarceration. We give these, uh, uh, video podcasts to Paytel who distribute them for free to individuals who have access to tablets uh, within, I don't know if it's across the country or if it's just in Virginia, but there are 48 different institutions who have access to this. And hundreds of thousands of individuals, well, under the hundreds of thousands of, of views come from this. And so I think that, you know, as we are changing the conversation to say, hey, wait a second, you know, there's another way that we can do this. I think that we're also empowering. I hope my goal, my hope is that we're empowering individuals who are sitting in a in a cell, cell right now, like I was once upon a time and saying, look, there is hope for something different. You know, there is somewhere else you can, there's something else you can do. And not only that, but there are people listening who want to change the conversation, who want to help. So, Katie, as we're nearing the hour here, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to close out and say anything you want to say to finish us off. And I also want to thank you again for joining us today and for your incredible patience with me over the last couple of weeks as we've sort of been navigating some the, the world, you know, life on life's terms, we say in recovery, right? So thank you. And uh, thank you for coming, excuse me, for joining us. And Justin, for you, for all the wonderful work that you do. Um, any last thoughts? Sure. So I do, I real, I do want to say to Greg, um, have your friend check. I can't tell you how many times that I've run a warrant and that the people didn't want them anymore. Um, a lot of times they're not even, they're, they've been expired and people don't even know that the warrant's been expired. Um, so as former law enforcement, I'll tell you, just have them check it. Um, so, but you know, and, and then maybe get help. Um, so I would just say, you know, uh, like, I have to do this, right? I'm Katie Sponsler, and I'm running um, the Democratic nominee for the 66th District in Virginia's House of Delegates. So if you're able to, please vote. Um, and um, so I have to tell you that, but I'm just going to say to your audience in particular, um, recovery is tough. Trauma is tough. Mental health is tough. And we make it tougher by not treating it the way it deserves to be treated, which is as a medical need, a disability. And if we remove the stigma and we acknowledge it. It's a huge part of my campaign to be able to say, listen, I am a sexual assault survivor. I am a PTSD and anxiety sufferer. Um, you know, I have my diagnoses and I'm not ashamed of them. Um, they make me um, the person I am. And that when I need help, I ask for it. And 
and it's an incredibly important part of being able to survive and build the way I am um, and to raise my kids. So if you need help, ask for it. I am always available um, on my website. You click the little contact us, but you get me. So even if it's a personal need or something that I can help with that's not a law, please um, reach out, let us know to those incarcerated individuals. I know so many folks that have been able to to beat that and become um, the human beings they were meant to be after they were released. Um, but in the meantime, the system is really hard and makes it harder for you. So we're gonna work really hard to make sure that it is not that difficult because one mistake should not define a life. Amen to that. And I, I wanna piggyback on what you said to Greg. Um, your friend needs to get some help. And you know, a lot of organizations, if you go to, um, you know, recovery community organizations, if you, if you go to a treatment center, you know, they can, you know, explain where you are and what, what it is, what it is that's going on. Um, you know, we've found a lot of, you know, we found that we've been able to communicate with prosecutors and say, well, we have a participant with us, you know, and so we're going to see if recovery works first. And sometimes we've been able to work with prosecutors, you know, or the commonwealth attorneys and, and to see, you know, to, to, to work things out a little, um, to create better outcomes. The reality though, is that, you know, if you're going to serve the time though, you know, if you have to go back to court, you know, if to have an advocate, a recovery advocate with you going in can sometimes really at least help, you know, demonstrate your willingness to try something different. So, you know, Greg, treat the treat the public try, excuse me treat the healthcare issue you know regardless of of you know what 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 else is going on because i know too many people who didn't want to get help who are no longer around so anyway on that somber note thank you katie for being here with us and good luck to you in the 66 we appreciate you for coming and and, and lending your voice um again justin thank you very much and to everybody watching and listening uh tomorrow we have jimmy brooks jimmy brooks is uh running in the 74th oh gosh i forgot my little notes my bad um but i'll tell you what jimmy brooks is a former uh, board chair of the McShin Foundation, running for House of Delegates on the Republican uh, as a Republican in the in the 74th district, and I'll tell you what, Jimmy's going to be on fire tomorrow, uh, making us laugh. I know that. So, um, with that, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a good night. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, guys. Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery, brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Woo -woo. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times-Dispatch and all of our voters for Get in the Herd podcast. 
Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShen. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.